last evening. Uh, we are still in our in our catechism. Um, last evening, though, we spoke about how the Bible is the only rule of faith and obedience. And simply put, that there is nothing that we need, as opposed to what the Roman Catholic Church would say, you need the Bible, sacred tradition, as well as the magisterium, which is the Pope and the bishops, uh, in order for there to be authority and, and a soul authority. And we believe that uh, soul authority comes from the Bible and the Bible alone. This is one of the great solas that was uh, defended uh, during the Reformation, sola scriptura, uh, where the Bible and the Bible alone is the only sole rule of faith and practice. So if you want to know about the Trinity, if you want to know about doctrine, about the Christian faith, uh, then you can read various systematic theologies, but also, and more importantly, in which where you should look is the Bible. Um, and if you want to know about how we are to live as Christians, then we can read God's word, for God reveals to us how we are to live as Christians. And this evening, uh, we're going to look at another way in which not only we are to live as Christians, but how all men are to live in general. Um, and that is the great uh, subject of natural law. Natural law. Um, natural law, in its essence, is going to deal with how do we know right from wrong? How do we know right from wrong? Um, is there an objective moral standard in which everyone is to abide by, or is morality subject to one's opinion? Meaning, whatever you think it's good for you, or if it's good for you, then it's good for you, but it might not be good for the next person. Um, and natural law, what it does for us is it tells us that there is an objective moral standard that everyone lives under and by. Um, and it, it speaks to much of, especially what we are dealing with uh, in our present time. Uh, we read of this in our catechism question, um, how may we know that there is a God? Uh, and it says, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God. So, if you remember, when we hear the words, the light of nature, it speaks of three things. It speaks of that innate knowledge that we all have via being created in the image of God. Because we are created in God's image, then we can observe the created order and come to conclusions that there is a God. This is also known as natural theology, right? Where... You don't need to necessarily teach someone that there is a God, but someone can come to the conclusion that there is a God by observing the world around them. God has written his existence upon their hearts and minds. But also uh, the light of nature, uh, which is an older way of speaking, but I think it's a very great way of speaking of what is called natural law. That there is a natural law that is written on all men's hearts and conscience. So just as the knowledge of God's existence, that everyone knows that God exists because God has written his existence upon man's heart and conscience, so it is with natural law. That God has written 
his moral law upon man's hearts and conscience. So this evening, let's consider the doctrine of natural law by two points. Number one, what is natural law? And number two, what is the biblical basis of natural law? And then we'll get into, at the end, uh, why is it important and how do we live in light of this doctrine? So number one, what is natural law? How do we define natural law? Well, like we always do, let's first define what natural law is not. Uh, What do we not mean when we say natural law? First and foremost, natural law is not the gospel. Natural law is not the gospel. There is a vast difference between what natural law says and what the gospel proclaims. There is a vast difference between what natural law says and what the gospel proclaims. You see, natural law tells you what's right and wrong. But the gospel tells you how you have wronged the only right one. Natural law is not intended to save. Knowing right or wrong is not, can never save you. But it is the power of, or the gospel is, is the only power unto salvation. Consider the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 60. It says, They who, having never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ and believe not him, cannot be saved. This is really dealing with those arguments, what people use that say, well, what about those people in remote countries that never heard of Jesus Christ? What about them? Are they going to go to hell? It says, these people cannot be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives accordingly to the light of nature or the laws of that religion which they profess, neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the church. So in essence, question 60 of the larger catechism is saying, no matter if you live according to the light of nature, which is natural theology or natural law, no matter if you live according to the laws written on your heart, and no matter if you obey the certain laws that your whatever religion puts forth, you will not be saved because salvation is only by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And saints, this speaks to so much of what or how the world thinks of how one is able to enter heaven. The world thinks that if they simply live upright, uh, do good works, but more importantly, not do anything that's too bad. If they're just a, a moral person, a good moral person, then the gates of heaven should swing open for them. I've met many people when we used to go speak to those in the marketplace, and I would ask them, how are you going to get to heaven? And they would say, by just being a good person. You see, friends, the world views people's eternal destiny by how morally upright they were on this earth how much they cared for their fellow neighbor, how much they loved their fellow neighbor, and based upon how good of a person they've been, in this life, that would determine their status in the next. But the Bible is contrary to the world's belief, is it not? The Bible doesn't judge one's eternal destiny by by how good of a person you've been in this world, but rather the Bible judges one's eternal destiny by whether or not you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very similar to what we learned somewhat this morning in Pastor Antonio's sermon when 
Christ asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? That's how the Bible judges one's eternal destiny. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And what are you going to do with this Christ? So, natural law doesn't save anyone. Having understanding of right or wrong doesn't save anyone. It's never been intended to save anyone. You can be the best person on earth and still not go to heaven. It is only by the merit of Jesus Christ and his saving work that saves. Number two, natural law doesn't stop people from sinning. Natural law doesn't stop people from sinning. In other words, just because man knows the difference between right and wrong doesn't mean that they always act morally upright. Doesn't mean that they always act according to that knowledge that they have within them. And we know this is true because of the sin that was brought upon us by Adam's fall in the garden. Our confession in chapter 6, paragraph 2, speaks of our estate because of Adam's sin. It reads, "Dead in, or We are dead in sin and wholly defiled in all of the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, all that we are is defined by sin. All that we are is defined by sin. We are sinners from head to foot, both internally and externally. And just because sin has not annihilated the capacity of unbelievers to discern right or wrong. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, it doesn't mean that unbelievers don't know exactly what right or wrong is. The problem is they're always going to go left rather than right. It does not stop the unregenerate man from sinning against his knowledge, the knowledge that he has within him of right and wrong. And continuing to hold down that knowledge, hold down that truth in unrighteousness. And thirdly, obedience to natural law, and this is important, obedience to natural law doesn't make one truly good. Obedience to natural law doesn't make one truly good. Obedience unto the natural law written on our conscience cannot be considered truly good if not done in faith according to the command of God and unto the glory of God. And I think this is helpful for us to understand because one of the arguments that you'll hear against Christianity is you don't need to be a Christian to be a good person. And we know that there are many atheists, unbelievers, skeptics, whoever, that are good people that do good things for this world. However, what we are saying is those good works that unbelievers and atheists do are not truly good because they're not done in faith and they're not done unto the glory of God. Zacharias Ursinus says good works are commanded by God and are in their own nature good, but become evil by an accident, not being done in a manner nor with the end with which they ought to be performed. In essence, it is only the righteous that can perform good works. For it was only the righteous that do good works in a proper manner, by faith, and unto a proper end to the glory of God. So only Christians, in essence, can do things that are truly good because we do them by faith and unto the glory of God. That is why we can say that all men's good deeds are as filthy rags, right? No matter 
how or what you do. Because they're not done in faith and they're not done into the glory of God. And lastly, natural law is not a complete standard for the Christian life. Natural law is not the complete standard for the Christian life. Meaning, the only law that Christians are to obey is the natural law that's written on our hearts. Although all men are obligated to obey natural law, the moral law, for the Christian, God has given to the church divine and positive laws that they are obligated to obey as well. You might hear Christians say, well, all I need to do is obey the Ten Commandments and I'm fine. But no, God has given to the church positive commands as well that you are to obey. And positive laws are simply those laws that are added to the moral law or natural law. Uh, They are laws that are not universally binding on all men, but they are binding on every single Christian. But also these natural laws can be taken away. Therefore, a specific time. So, for instance, circumcision and um, animal sacrifices. Uh, Two examples that we see in the Old Testament. Those are positive laws, but they were done away with by the coming of Jesus Christ. There are positive laws that we obey now, right? We're going to do one in just a few minutes. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a positive law that we as Christians must partake of. Baptism is a positive law. One day, we're not going to partake of the Lord's Supper. One day, we're not going to be, need to be baptized. So when we say um, natural law, there are more things that we as Christians are obligated to obey other than the Ten Commandments or the natural law that's written on our hearts. God has given to the church special, divine, positive laws. So now let's answer, what is natural law? What is natural law? One theologian has defined natural law in this way. That order or rule of human conduct, which is based upon nature, human nature, as created by God, knowable by all men through human institution and reasoning alone, independent of any particular divine revelation provided through a divine spokesman, and thus normative for all human beings. In other words, what natural law is, is apart from you ever reading the Bible, apart from you being a Christian, by nature you know right or wrong. That's essentially what natural law is saying. That's similar to what natural theology is saying too, right? Apart from you ever reading the Bible, apart from you ever listening to a debate between an atheist and a Christian, you can observe the world and come to the conclusion that God exists. Well, the same thing with natural law. Apart from ever reading a Bible or having a particular religious slant, you know right or wrong by nature, by being created in the image of God. We say that because natural law is a reflection. We can also say that natural law is a reflection of God's moral character. Natural law reflects God's moral character. We can say that natural law, it participates. It's not equivalent to, but it participates in the eternal law. And the eternal law is nothing but the mind of God as it is applied to the sovereign ordering and governing of creation. So again, what is natural law? Natural law is that law that all men possess by being created in the image of God. Natural law is that law that all men possess by being created in the image of God. Now, this begs a question. Since we know that 
what natural law is, we have to ask, what is the content of natural law? So if we were to say, here are the laws of RBC, next you would ask, okay, what are those laws? So what are these laws that are embedded in natural law? What laws are they? And natural law in substance, if you're taking notes, this is important, natural law in substance is no different than the Ten Commandments. Natural law in substance is no different than the Ten Commandments. Meaning, the Ten Commandments are equivalent to the natural law written on man's conscience. So, what I'm saying is this. The Ten Commandments are written on every man's heart and minds. The Ten Commandments are written on every man's hearts and minds. Even the Fourth Commandment, even the Fourth Commandment, which talks about Sabbath and all that. So the Ten Commandments are equivalent to natural law. And it is the Ten Commandments that are written on the hearts and minds of men. Theodore Beza explains this well. The law is natural to man. God has engraved it in his heart from creation. When a long time afterwards, God made and exhibited the two tables of the law, this was not to make a new law, but only to restore our first knowledge of the natural law, which because of the corruption of sin was little by little becoming obliterated over the heart or from the heart of man. What Beza is saying is there was a law that God created man or that God gave to man and this natural law was codified was was given to Moses on two tables of stone tablets of stone and Beza says but when we read of the ten commandments given to Israel that's not a new law but rather it is making known more clearly the law written on our hearts that's what God did in giving the Ten Commandments. It was, it was giving us more of his will and more of what we know by nature on two tables of stone. Again, Beza says, when these two tables of the law were given, this was not to make a new law, but only to restore our first knowledge of that natural law. This is important for us when we're talking to unbelievers. Because this is where we ground our objective moral standard. That you know that God exists, but also you know right from wrong. And the Ten Commandments are uh, what is written on the hearts and minds of men. So in summary, natural law is that law written on the conscience of man. Because we are created in the image of God, God has made us to reflect his character by writing the moral law or the Ten Commandments upon our hearts and minds. And this natural law is the moral law, which is best summed up in the Ten Commandments. So in essence, all men have the Ten Commandments written on their conscience. All men have the Ten Commandments written on their conscience. And friends, this, is, this truth is so clearly seen in our life and in the history of humanity, is it not? 
Why is it that everyone knows that murder is wrong? Just go down the list. Why is it that people know that stealing is wrong? Or why is it that people know that adultery is wrong? Now, one might say, in some cases, it's okay to steal. In some cases, it's okay to kill. Until you bring the argument back on them and say, okay, well, why don't I steal your property? Why don't I murder your family members? Then they're going to say, no, don't do that. And when they're doing that, they are reflecting the law that was created and was given to them, which is the moral law, right? Is because these things, murder, stealing, adultery, if you want a really good one on how the fourth commandment is universally binding on all men, uh, there's a there's a sermon that Pastor Antonio did. If you want, I can send it to you. But he speaks to how the fourth commandment, which is some, which is I, the biggest one, I think, out of uh, the ten commandments, and them being universally binding on all men, because uh, people think it's only for Christians. Um, he does a really good job in that sermon of explaining how the fourth commandment is universally binding on all individuals. But these things, murder, stealing, adultery. Uh, the things that we see in the Ten Commandments, those things are wrong because they are contrary to God's nature. First and foremost, the law says something about who God is, but also contrary to the law that God has impressed upon our minds. This is why something like abortion is wrong. This is why when we, when we, when we talk about abortion, it's murder. Because at the moment of conception, that's, that's, that baby that's in the womb, there's a, there's a, there's a transcendental, um, relationship between what's in the womb and humanity. And although abortion is legalized in the U.S., um, we understand, we as Christians understand that there is a law that is above law. And I think that's really important for us to know, especially during this time and, and for you to teach your children it doesn't matter if the state has legalized something. There is a greater law above the magistrate's law. And that is God's moral law. We'll speak a little bit about that in the end. Let's now move on to the second and last point, which is the biblical basis for natural law. You might say, okay, now where do we see this in Scripture? Let me give you a few. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Here Paul is speaking of the problem of the whole human race. Uh, This is the problem of humanity as a whole. Because of Adam's sin, we are under God's just wrath and are worthy of punishment. We deserve an infinite punishment. Paul says that men suppress the truth, though. And when he says that, it means it can mean two different things, which I think it means two different things. It means that man continues to ignore and bring down that innate knowledge that they have that God exists. That man continues to suppress that knowledge that there is a God. But also, truth can mean that which is good and true. 
that which is just and right and moral. That is to say, because of sin, man doesn't always act according to the natural law that's written on their conscience. But man continues to bring down and suppress that truth. This is what leads Paul to say in verse, verses 26 to 27. For this reason, God gave them over to grating passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is an unnatural. In the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward another man. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And if there's any two verses that we need to know clearly and teach our children, I think of these two verses, especially in our time today. Because of sin, Paul says men and women act unnatural by lusting after the same sex. They don't act according to their nature, but suppress what is true, what is natural. That is, a man is to be with a woman. And a woman is to be with a man. And anyone who desires and lusts after the same sex, Paul is saying you are suppressing that natural law and that natural ordering that God had given in creation. God created man, male and female. And one of the problems with homosexuality is it distorts, it disrupts. The goal and, and the aim in which man and woman were created unto. And that is a union of marriage that leads to procreation. Homosexuality, it breaks that aim. It breaks that goal. And it does unnatural things. In Romans 2, Paul brings out how all men obey the law that's written within them. And I think if there's any... If there's any one proof text for natural law, it is definitely Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hear what the Apostle Paul says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts accusing or else uh, defending them. So, here Paul is saying this. The Ten Commandments were not formally given to the Gentiles, but they were given to the people of Israel. But although the Gentiles didn't formally receive the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone by the hands of Moses, even though they weren't receivers of the Ten Commandments, Paul says that in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Meaning, although God didn't give the Gentiles the Ten Commandments by their actions, the Gentiles show that the Ten Commandments are written on their heart. That's very, very important. And I think for us to establish this universal moral law that's binding on every single person, That although the Gentiles did not receive the Ten Commandments, by their actions, they do the Ten Commandments. Let me give you a few more examples of natural law in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6.18, free, flee immortality. Um, 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Again, notice Paul writes that the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, one commentator said, to sin sexually is to offend against the right order inscribed by God unto the body he created for you. It breaks the natural law that God decreed. You are sinning against your own nature. Genesis 9, uh, verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Here God gives Noah his commission, and notice the very commission to do justice to others is grounded in human nature. Our Christ touches on this in Matthew 7, verse 12. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them, or you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Here Christ sums up the entire Christian ethic by saying you are to treat others the way you would want to be treated. Because we are created in God's image, there is a moral standard by which we are to treat others according to. That we aren't to treat others in a wrong way. Much more verses can be given, but <clears throat> let's now consider two things before we close. Uh, number one, why should we care about natural law? And number two, uh, how do we live in light of this lesson? So number one, why should we care about natural law? And number two, how do we live in light of this lesson? Why should we care and learn about natural law? Why should we do a lesson uh, on natural law? Well, apart from it being biblical and being a part of our rich tradition, natural law tells us about the God whom we serve. Natural law tells us about the God whom we serve. Why is murder wrong? Because God does not murder. And because he values himself and the image of other human beings. Why is something like lying wrong? Because a God, the God whom we serve, is a God of truth. And he cannot lie. And ultimately, all the moral standards that exist tell us, first and foremost, not the law written on our heart, but who God is. His holiness. His righteous character. And by knowing these moral standards and obeying the moral law, we might reflect who God is. That's what happens, saints, when you obey the commands of God. You are reflecting who God is. That when you do good works, the world doesn't see you per se, but it sees God. And you are giving all glory to him. Secondly, natural law matters for it helps us make sense of the various injustices throughout history. It helps us make sense of the various injustices throughout history. During um, Hitler's reign, there was something that was uh, that that Hitler uh, gave to the to the German people, uh, and that is called the Nuremberg Laws. And what that simply means is, or what the law said was, it gave German people the right to kill, torture Jewish people. It was their license to kill any Jew. 
and to strip away their citizenship, to do whatever they wanted with them. Now, post-World War II, when they went to trial, some of these Nazis, one of the big debates was this, that you were being charged for war crimes, but the Nazis were saying, but wait a minute, I was obeying the law. I was doing what I was told, and the law said I could kill and torture Jews. But the world said, no, there is a law that goes above the law. That there is a law that goes beyond the law of the land. And that is God's moral law. You see the dilemma there? Just as with abortion, as we talked about. Abortion is legal, but we understand that to the Christian, it is murder. To the Christian, it is one of the most, if not the most, immoral thing you can do. Think about the civil rights movement. What was that debate over? Yes, it was over blacks, and it was over whites, and it was over police brutality and all that, but... At its very core, it was over natural law. That there was just, there was just ways in which you are to treat people. The big uproar right now over George, or George, George Lloyd. Floyd. You're right. I was saying Lloyd. Floyd. We heard this morning and Pastor Antonio said correctly that at its very essence, this is about man's depravity. This is about man being dead in his sin. And showing how evil and wicked man is. And I would say also this is showing the natural law that's written on every man's heart. That George Floyd should not have been treated that way. And when we see that injustice, we rise up because man is created in the image of God. And we are to uphold the life of man especially when we give that power over to those who are to uphold life rather than take away life at the cost of whatever. So natural law helps us uh, make sense of the various injustices throughout history, that there is, saints, a law above law, and that is God's law. Thirdly and lastly, natural law helps us defend the faith. Natural law helps us defend the faith. The argument goes as this, as such, because each person possesses the natural law by nature, that means that there is a natural law giver. Because we have a natural law, it means that there is a natural law giver. That that the laws that we have innate within us, that they're not eternal. But natural law comes with creation. It comes with being created in God's image. And when we talk to unbelievers such as atheists or skeptics like them, they can't ground morality because they already gone away with the existence of God. So if there is no God, then how do you know what's right and what's wrong? What's right for you might not be right for me. And what's wrong for you might not be wrong for me. That's one of the great errors of atheism. Is 
They don't have an objective moral standard because they have already done away with God who is and who gives that objective moral standard. C.S. Lewis says, my argument against God, he's talking about when he was an atheist. C.S., uh, he became a Christian. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got to this idea of just and unjust when he was an atheist? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So when an atheist says, especially now over what's going on with with, uh, Mr. Floyd, if he says, that is wrong, that's unjust. Well, atheists, you do not have a ground to call that wrong and unjust. And if you hold to Darwinism, then why is that not survival of the fittest? Why is it not better that Mr. Floyd is gone and not here, according to a Darwinianism worldview? You see, this is what helps us when we defend a faith, is that we, the Christian, can call something good and can call something wrong. But if you don't believe in God, then you don't have an objective basis for calling something good and for calling something wrong. And the problem with atheism is although they profess that God does not exist, they live as God exists. Because they care about tomorrow. They lock their doors at night. They care about life. So how are we to live in light of this? Well, again, what we said this morning, or what I said this morning is a fitting way for us to live by and what Christ says in Matthew 5 verse 9 blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God and because we have this uh, innate knowledge of God because we have this moral law written on our hearts then we are to live by them we are to love them the most righteous men on this earth are those who abide by God's law and for the Christian We don't just have God's moral law, but we have divine and positive laws. And those divine positive laws help us in our sanctification, help us in growing. And let me lastly say, if there is no natural law, then the things that you see on television, such as looting, such as the killings, it would be an everyday thing. If we don't have a natural law, then think of how this world would be. If everyone had the say in what is right and what is wrong, it would essentially be a free-for-all. We can do whatever we want and we can't say anything about it. But we are the people who are to be light in this world, especially in light of what's going on in our present day That it's okay to say, hey, you people that are doing these lootings and you people that are stealing other people's property, although you are saying and you're crying for an injustice here, you are doing an injustice over here. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to be righteous in one area, be righteous in the next. And let us, saints, be consistent in how we are as Christians in our lives. Let's pray.